0: Um, Today, we are going to be finishing Romans chapter 8, and we are going to be going through verses 31 to 39. Romans chapter 8. 31 to 39. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, that would be great. If not, all the texts that will be gone through will appear on the screen behind me. So even if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, you can follow along from the screen. And as has already been said, this has been called by some the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter in the whole Bible of the greatest letter that has ever been written. Uh, I know that's uh, speaking well of Romans 8, but it is packed full of glorious truth and promises for God's people, especially when they are hurting and suffering and going through the trials and tribulations of the Christian life. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in, and we're going to rip through 31 to 39, and we're going to prayerfully get it done in 45 minutes, and then we're going to take communion together as one church, and then we're going to fellowship with a meal together. So please pray with me before we jump into the word. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You have revealed yourself to us in your word. It is a gift. It is a treasure. Father, we don't want to take your word lightly. We want to live by it. We want to be under it. We want to be gently corrected, guided by it we don't want to be over it. We want you by your word to be over us. God, give us grace to submit to your will revealed in your word. Help us as we finish up Romans 8. Help us to pay attention. Help us to focus. I pray that you would minimize distractions. I pray that you would give us understanding from your Holy Spirit. Be with us as we dig in. In Jesus' name, everyone said... Amen. So we do have a nursery open. If you wanted to take your kids upstairs, uh, my wife is up there. uh, Ages three and under are welcome to head up there if you want to take them. If not, they're welcome to hang out in here as well. All right, so we're going to start by reading through... Romans 8, 31 to 39. Now, I'm going to be jumping to other texts for references to clarify various verses, but this will be the main text we will work with, and it will uh, reappear on the screen continuously as we jump through other Bible verses as cross-references. So let's read Romans eight thirty-one to 39 together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What great truth and promises to us, His people. The major theme of this section of scripture is this, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's logically easy to understand. If God is, if he exists, and if he is the creator, if He is the sustainer of all things He created, if He is ruling and reigning on high, sovereignly, even guiding all the details of our lives through His sovereign providence, if that is your belief, and then on top of that belief, you believe that He is for you, because you're in Christ, because you're united to His Son by grace through faith, If God is for you because you're hidden in Jesus, then who is it that can step to you? That's the theme of this text. You are safe, hidden in Christ. God is for you, and he is not against you. That's what this section of scripture is about. And what we'll see as we move through it is this. Life on this earth is fallen. And as Bob Kellerman says, sometimes it falls on us. Sometimes we get into all kinds of troubles and disasters and hurts and pains. And the question that we ask in those seasons is it, is God for me or is he against me? We wonder, we question, we have an accuser, the great enemy of God and Christians, the devil, Satan whose name means accuser, the adversary. He accuses us of not really being God's children and that God is not really for us. He's actually against us. If God was for you, how could these things be happening to you? These are the kind of things Satan says to us. And if that is happening to you tonight or in this season of your life, you must turn to a passage like this and you read it And you meditate on it, like Psalm 1 says. And you realize by faith, and sometimes if you don't have the faith, then you ask God for the faith. Give me the grace to believe what this says. I believe, help my unbelief, please. And so it starts, what shall we say to these things? Now, what things? What shall we say to these things? Well, probably chapter 1 all the way, to verse 29, but most specifically verses 28, 29, and 30, which was the text of the sermon last week. And specifically, God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What is the good that God is working all things towards? The good is the next verse, that we, his people, would be conformed to the image of Christ. And he had this plan before the foundation of the world. Verse 29 and 30. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? And the answer is, if God is for us, then who could be against us? Now, now you got to take this in the flow of the argument here, okay? Romans 8.29 says that all things that come into your life as a Christian, good, bad, and ugly, God is going to take those things and turn them for good, for ultimate good for you. That doesn't mean the things in themselves are good. Often they are not good, and often they will be met with God's wrath. But God uses sin and uses sinners to accomplish his good purposes, And if you struggle with that, I just want you to think about the ultimate sin. Human beings killed God. And God used that for the salvation of all of his people for all time. The greatest sin ever committed, God used to save his people past, present, and future. And so he uses sin to accomplish his purposes all the time. And if God is doing that, And he's going to take all the bad things in your life and turn them for good. And the good is ultimately that you will look like Jesus in his character and in his quality. That is a good thing to remember when the troubles and trials hit. Now, he says, you are foreknown. You have a relationship with God before the world began. That's what foreknown means, if you remember. And out of that choosing to have a relationship with you before the world began, he predetermined your destiny as a Christian. And in time and space, you came into existence. And at some point in your life, God called you to himself effectively and efficiently. And you believed. You were born again. You had spiritual life breathed into your dead spiritual existence. And you believed. You were born again. You were regenerate. And out of that, you exercised faith. And from faith you were justified. And the next step in your, if you will, movement towards glorification is that God will make you persevere all the way until you are glorified. And in addition to you, the whole world will be glorified and the whole universe glorified as well. Okay? What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Now, who is... The one for us, God. How do we know this? Before the foundation of the world, he chose to have a relationship with you. In time and space, he effectively brought you to himself. He has declared you not guilty when you are guilty because you have the not guiltiness of another given, gifted to you. And he will, as Philippians 1.6 says, finish what he started. He will. He will do it. And so we know God is for us because he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. And now he's going to argue for this statement that he just made. And he says, he, the he is God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, the all things here is pointing back, I think, to the all things of Romans eight twenty eight, because he said all things work together for good. But it's the all things we need for life and godliness. In fact, this is what is said in, um, in Peter. Do you remember that? Um, in Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, to 3-4, this is what Peter says. His God, divine power, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to or by his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises like Romans eight thirty one to 39 so that through them through the promises you may become partakers of the divine nature now he's thinking of a very specific promise here and it's the gospel promise It's the one that saves, the word that saves, because when we become partakers of the divine nature, it means that we have God's spiritual life breathed into us and God's spirit living inside of us. The spirit of God takes up residence inside of Christians such that Paul can say to the Corinthians, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. And so we as Christians partake in divinity in the sense that the divine lives inside of us. We are like the Old Testament temple that housed the presence of God. You are partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. When we get a new heart, we get new desires. Out of new desires flow new actions. God radically changes Christians. And what does he say here? He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through through something, the knowledge of him who called us, and he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Okay, so the promises of God are really important, friends. Here's why. You have in God's word multitude of promises from God to you as his child, both sons and daughters. Paul tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus has won for us every promise that exists in the Bible, and they are yours to cling to. So this is what faith is. Faith is trusting. Faith is believing, but it's not believing without an object. Faith always lands on substance, something of substance. And the promises of God are what Christians are to exercise faith in. Our faith lands on first Christ for salvation, and then after Christ and we are saved, we have the promises of God to trust in, to stand on. To lean on, to claim as ours. We don't, as some theologians would teach, speak our own reality into existence and we just keep claiming it by faith, knowing that it will be. That's not the way faith works. Faith always has an object and its solidness depends on how good your faith is. In other words, faith's only as good as the object it's in. And if your faith is in the promises of God, man, that's a great place to land your faith. And Peter here says that we have these promises that God has granted to us. Now, verse 32, let's back up again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? This is what's called a greater Uh, a lesser to greater argument, meaning if God gave us the greatest, will he not give us uh, the, the less? It's a greater to lesser argument, rather. And so what's happening is God gave us the best thing he could give us, the greatest thing he could give us. Will he not, because he's already given us Jesus, give us everything we need to persevere, to live the Christian life, to continue in the faith, he will. That's the argument. Now, the he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, there's, there's complexity here that I can't really dive into, but it points back to Genesis where Abraham uh, is going to kill his son Isaac. And if you remember, at the last minute as he was about to plunge the knife into his son, uh, a voice comes and says, stop. Stop. And the idea here is, it's the one who gave him up for us all. He is uh, pictured Abraham here, but Abraham got to spare his own son. God did not spare his own son for us. As Abraham was about to plunge the knife into Isaac and kill his only son whom he loved, God went through with it and plunged the knife into Christ, if you will. And that's kind of the, the Septuagint language actually is borrowed from Genesis 22. Septuagint means uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, I think that it's also pictured, you know, Paul was a Bible scholar, guys. Paul memorized large portions of the Old Testament, probably the first five books. And so when he's writing, he may not be quoting outright, but in his mind is flowing all kinds of Old Testament promises and pictures and stories that he alludes to throughout um, the whole of Romans. And here, uh, he's probably alluding to Isaiah 53, which is the most clear Jesus text in the old testament if you want to see christ in the old testament as clear as day you go to isaiah 53 and look at it he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all isaiah 53 10 and 11 says it was the will of the lord to crush him it was god's will and purpose to crush jesus that's what that means He has put him, the he is God, the him is Jesus, he has put him to grief when his soul, the his is Jesus, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Whose guilt? Not his own. His people's guilt. The reason we can be not guilty in Jesus is because Jesus took the punishment for our guilt on the cross. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's an allusion to the resurrection. He will see the fruit of his labors, his brothers and sisters that will come after him. He shall prolong his days, meaning he will come back to life from the grave. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He will be the name above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall see the reward for his labors. Many, many, many sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous. I love that. That means accounted, though they're not righteous. This is an allusion to what's called um, imputed righteousness. Impute means to credit in place of another. And so this is Jesus' righteousness given to all his people as a gift. On the cross, Jesus takes our guilt. As a gift, he gives us his not-guiltiness. But more than that, his righteousness, his positive account, he gives to us. And so by his work on the cross, he makes many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. There's the great exchange. We get his righteousness. He gets our iniquities. He pays for our sin. We get his perfect life. It's as if friends, we've loved God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength without fail, every moment of every day. That's amazing. That's yours in Christ. And the Bible is full of these kind of truths or promises that are yours in Christ. But remember, Paul said, he who did not spare his own son, remember, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's will. Why would he want to crush his own son? Because of what it would accomplish. Ultimate glorification of Jesus, if you will, because he would receive the name that is above every knee, name so that at the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, and he will accomplish salvation for many, 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 countless, I think, billions and billions if you add up time from creation to new creation. How many countless billions of Christians did Jesus save? We don't know. Great multitude that no one can number. And prayerfully, all of you are in that number. That's my hope for all of you. And so the argument is, if he gave up his only son whom he loved, will he not give us everything else that we need? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, you remember from last week, election is all over the Bible, Uh, The Bible does not hide this thing called election or predestination. It's out in the open. Many writers use it, and we should wrestle with it because we believe all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It's all good for us, even the parts that make us uncomfortable. And so God does have those whom he foreknew, and those whom he foreknew he predestined, and those whom he predestined he called. And by the calling, we are regenerated, able to exercise faith, and from faith comes justification. And the next move on God's part is we persevere to the end by his doing, and we are glorified. And the question here is, who can bring any charge against God's chosen? His elect ones. It's a rhetorical question. No one. No one can charge you with any wrong before God. Why? Because it's God who justifies. You see that? Now, we left out justification last week because I just kind of ran out of time, but I figured I'd spend a few minutes here, and I just did in the Isaiah 53 verse. Justification is a theological term that you want to understand and hold on to if you want to simplify it, what does justification mean? What is it to be justified? It's this. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And just as if I'd always obeyed. You have the negative taken care of. Jesus dies for your sin. He takes your guiltiness upon himself and he deals with it. And the positive you have his righteousness. In the positive, you have his not-guiltiness. And it's just as if you always obeyed God. It's just as if you were righteous before God. That's what it is to be justified. And so if God is the one who says to us who are guilty, you are not guilty because I have taken your guiltiness and placed it on a substitute, namely Jesus, and you get his not-guiltiness, if he's the ultimate authority and he declares us to be righteous and just, who can say anything to God otherwise? That's the argument. He's like, look, it's God who's the one doing the justifying. There's no one who can condemn you. No one is greater than God, and he is the one saying that you're right with him and that you're right before him based on the actions of another Let's move on, because there's a lot here, and I'm running out of time. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And so now he's saying, no one can condemn us because Christ Jesus is the one who died. He was the substitute. When we're in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Now, I love that verse there, that verse 34. I do want to dig it for just a minute, so let's look at it. Jesus is interceding for us. What does that mean? Well, I think it means at least two things, but it probably means much more. Number one, his work on the cross is constantly for your sin. You will continue to sin. You will have bad attitudes, you will have bad actions, you will do sins of omission where you should do something and you don't do it. You will continue to sin as a Christian. In fact, 1 John 1:8 says if we claim to be without sin, we are liars. The truth is not in us. But the next verse is good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so his work on the cross is constantly interceding for your sin. But in addition to that, the right hand of God is the place of power and prominence and authority. Now, I used to think when I was a kid that there's this big throne and God is sitting on it and then there's a little throne at the right. And Jesus, as a human being, a glorified one, but, but a little throne, fit for a human being, is Jesus is at his right hand, and he looks way down at him. Now I understand it's metaphoric. Uh, it, he's not literally sitting at God's right hand. It's an image of power and authority and prestige and rulership. And the idea here is he is at God's right hand. And as Eddie preached so well two weeks ago, not only is the spirit interceding for us with groans that cannot be uttered, but Jesus intercedes for us as well. He is our advocate. Now, this is important for you to remember, okay? Jesus is your advocate. And here is 1 John 2.1. My little children, so we know he's talking to Christians, My little children, the ones whom I am discipling, the ones whom I consider my spiritual children, I am writing these things to you. What things? The letter. That you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. And so I'm crafting this letter to help you as a means of grace to not sin. But if anyone does sin, and then everyone's hands sheepishly goes, "Eh." What happens if we sin? We have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the righteous one who gives us his righteousness. Now, the word here is uh, parakalitos. Parakalitos. It means intercessor, counselor, advocate, comforter. But the image is richer than that. Listen, this is from Vine's expository dictionary. Here's what the word means. Okay. The word advocate, we have an advocate with the Father. It means to be called to one side. I love that. So here's, here's the deal. You sin, your conscience is condemning you. Satan is accusing you. Others might be condemning you, and one pulls up beside you. A defense attorney. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Righteous. And he puts his arm around you and he says, this one's mine. No condemnation for this one. Your accusations don't stick. It literally means called to one side. I love that. That's what Jesus is for us, friends. He's right here beside us advocating for our righteousness that is his given to us as a gift. It means called to one's aid. It was used in the court of justice to denote a legal assistant, a counsel for the defense, an advocate, then generally one who pleads another's cause, an intercessor. This is Jesus for us. Now, interestingly, Jesus says, by the way, there's another advocate In John 14, 15 to 17, this is the upper room. This is the Last Supper. There's a a long discourse there by Jesus with his disciples, and it's recorded for us. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I mention it almost every sermon, so I might as well do it again. What he says here is, if you love me, then you will keep my commands. And we often read this backwards. We read it if I'm not keeping Jesus' commands, then I don't love him. But that's not what the verse actually says. The verse actually says, the loving of Jesus causes the keeping of commands. It's not the keeping of commands that proves that you love Jesus. He says, the more you love me, what will result from it? The more you'll obey and so what should we focus on? If we're going to be diligent and focus on something, should we focus on keeping commands or loving God? Which one comes first? Loving God. If you love me, then you'll keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, helper, counselor, paracletos the word to be with you. But, but notice, look, he says, another helper. Mm-hmm. Who's the first one? He's speaking. The first advocate is the one telling the truth that I'm going to send another one. Friends, we have two advocates with the Father. And by the way, the Trinity's here. Uh, the Trinity's all over the Bible. I just had an interesting conversation with a guy who was learning about the Trinity and he was upset. He was like, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And he was upset. And I was like, you're right, but it's there. The word's not there, but the triune God is there all over the Bible. And I gave him a few references and oh, okay. And he was okay with that. Don't get hung up on theological terms. The substance is the important thing. I think the word Trinity is great. I think we should use it, but don't get hung up on that. Okay, here's the substance right here. You have the father, you have Jesus speaking. He's the paracletos and he's gonna send another one. Who is it? The spirit of truth. The SV uh, capitalizes spirit there rightly. The Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive. Only believers receive the spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, my disciples, for he dwells with you and will be in you, pointing to Pentecost. And post-Pentecost, every believer instantly, at the moment of rebirth, has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them as if they were the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. He doesn't come at a later date. He comes the moment there's belief. That's Ephesians 1, 12, 13, and 14. We don't have time to go there, but you you can look that up. At the moment of belief, you have the Holy Spirit and he is your advocate. He is your defense. This is what it looks like practically, okay? And then we'll leave this little excursion here. Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is Paul's last letter before he is executed, before he's beheaded uh, by the Roman authorities. Some think this was penned like as the executioners were coming down to the dungeon, We don't know for sure, but we know this was the last thing Paul wrote before he was executed. And he wrote this to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, at my first defense, so Paul was already on trial. He's talking about his trial at Rome. Okay, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. Paul was alone. Everyone left him. He was abandoned. May it not be charged against them. He's not bitter. He's not resentful. He's not looking for revenge. He doesn't say, may the Lord smite them. No. He says, may it not be... It sounds kind of like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It sounds like Stephen being stoned in Acts chapter 7. Lay not this sin to their charge. May it not be charged against them. But look at verse 17. Everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood... By me, Jesus was there with his arm around me while I was on trial as my advocate, as my defense attorney. He was there. And if God is for me, who could be against me? He stood by me and strengthened me. This is what the advocate does, friends. He is yours and he is for your strength. So that, through me, the message might be fully proclaimed. Message, gospel. Paul's charge from day one was to speak the gospel to rulers, to authorities, and to Gentiles. And he fulfilled his mission. You can read about it in Acts. We don't have time to do it right now. That all the Gentiles might hear it, the gospel. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. At my first defense the word is actually apologia. At my first defense, no one was there, but Jesus was there, and I was rescued. Now, he doesn't know what's going to happen as he's writing this. We know from church history, Paul went home. He went home to be with Jesus. Friends, do you realize you're going to be able to talk to Paul one day if you're a Christian? Like, have some glorified coffee with him? Hopefully some, gl- some glorified African coffee, because that's the best coffee on the planet. <laughs> Perhaps even Ethiopian soil coffee. New heavens, new earth, Ethiopian coffee. I cannot wait. <laughs> I like Ugandan coffee as well, so maybe Phillips, shout out to Phillips. Maybe it'll be Ugandan coffee, we'll see. Anyway, sitting down with Paul, sipping some bean chopping it up about his life. So tell me, you left a lot out in your letters, bro. Fill me in. Where shall I begin? (laughs) Want some cream with that? All right. So who is it to condemn? Verse 34. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us as our advocate. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And now he is going to bring up possible separators. And by the way, if you want to read Paul's account in Second Corinthians, uh, he experienced all these. Shipwrecked, beaten with rods, stoned to death, um, attacked various times by wild animals and wild people. You know, he, he really went through it. Fight vipers bite him and he survives venomous viper bites. I mean, the dude really went through it. And so he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword Shall these things separate us from the love of God? And here's what he's trying to say. If you're going through tribulation, and, and here's what the word means. It means suffering, trouble, anguish, persecution, burdened, afflictions, distress. That's the way that that word is translated in other passages. Same exact Greek word. Sufferings, trouble, anguish, persecution, burdened, afflictions, distress. When you're going through stuff like that, in addition to Distress. Persecution means you are suffering for the sake of Jesus. Because you're a believer, you are being persecuted. You are being attacked in some way, verbally or physically. You are being oppressed, perhaps. You are being silenced, perhaps. You are being persecuted. How about famine? You don't have any food. How about nakedness? That's pretty terrible, how about danger or how about sword? The word sword is used later in Romans 13 to talk about what God gave the government. It talks about obeying the governing authorities for God gave them the sword for punishment. When we get to Romans 13, we'll talk about governing authorities and the power God gave them actually as a gift to human beings. But sometimes the government goes against Christians. Church history is full of governments turning on Christians, especially in communist nations. North Korea, for example, right now, you can't be a Christian and be open with it. Most of China now is becoming very hostile towards Christianity. In Muslim-dominated countries, you can't openly be a Christian. And the governments have the power to come after Christians and to kill them. Paul acted on behalf of the Jewish government to hunt Christians. Read Acts chapter 9. And then God grabbed him right in the middle of it. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so the sword probably means here, government attacking Christians. If you have that list happening to you, you are definitely being tempted, there's no way God loves me. Because much lesser things have happened to you and you've thought does god really love me? cuz if he loved me this wouldn't be happening. And I want to I want to put this out here to you that may not be you actually originating that. That's definitely something satan would want you to believe. And I do believe there is a real satan. I don't think he's a myth. I don't think it's this mythological creature. I think he's a real fallen angel. And he exists, and he, and he leads a legion of fallen angels. And he's personal, and he's intelligent, and he's malevolent, and he's after you. Isn't that what Peter says? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If we believe the Bible, we should believe in Satan and demons. And we should also believe that they are at war with us. That's what Ephesians 6 says put on the whole armor of God that you may withstand the attacks. Okay. And so here you have Satan whispering in your ear, if God loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. Is this the way God treats his children? Maybe you're not a child of God. Maybe he's punishing you. How do you fight that friends? You you need to know the gospel. You say no god is not punishing me because Jesus took all my punishment. God uses even the bad things in my life for ultimate good. You know Romans 8:28 and you say it out loud to the devil. And you might at the same time be saying, "God, this is hard for me to believe. Help my unbelief." Wrestle wrestle with the devil. Wrestle with God. Did you know that Old Testament people of God, they were called Israel, my son's name? Do you know what Israel means? One who wrestles with God. The New Testament people are the church, and Israel progresses to the church. If we're talking about biblical theology, I don't have time to do that. But the church is now one who wrestles with God. But we also wrestle with Satan, Ephesians 6. A wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. So what does all that mean? That means that you are going to struggle to trust God when you are suffering. That's what that means. You're going to wrestle with faith. Do I really believe this? Do I really believe this word? And you have Satan on the dark end saying, you shall not believe. You should go after your sin. If God loved you, he would not be treating you like this. Now, I don't think any of us have faced these lists. But many Christians have. And these lists are precious to those. And so let's keep going. As it is written, verse 36, for we, for your sake, God, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's Psalm forty-four, twenty-two that he is uh, quoting there. The sons of Korah wrote it. And it's a lament, and it's, it's asking God to come to their aid. You did all these good things for our ancestors in the past, but now look what's happening. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long by our enemies. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered to your enemies, God. And he's, he's wrestling with God in Psalm 44. You can read it for yourself when you have time. And so Paul quotes this and says, this is what will happen to Christians. Friends, If you've bought into a health and wealth version of Christianity, the only thing I can say is you've not studied this passage. Because it is the furthest thing from health and wealth. You may be naked. You may be not eating, famine. You may have the government after you. You may be in distress. You may have troubles and tribulations, but God is for you. A lot of us believe if God is for me, my life should get better and better and easier, and my bank account should grow, and my portfolio should widen, and my car should get newer, and my house should get bigger, and my health should get better, and that's not Christianity. And whoever tries to sell you that, I want to plead with you, don't buy it. Buy the biblical Christianity instead, and don't sell it. Isn't that what the proverb says? Buy the truth and don't sell it. Friends, there's a lot of lies out there. Many, many deceivers. No, verse 37. In all these things, what things? All that bad list. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The him who loved us is Jesus. Now, what could he be talking about here? Even in death, friends, the Christian wins. What's the worst thing that could happen to you in this life? You die. You know what that means for the Christian? Victory. Death is a door for the Christian that leads you into eternal bliss, eternal joy, the absence of sin, God's presence. And in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, we conquer through death just like someone else conquered through death. Didn't Jesus win by losing? Friends, we should not expect our story to be much different. And I don't like that. I'll just be honest. I want to win. And God's like, my version of winning is different than your version of winning. Like my version of winning does kind of look health and wealthish. And I want to succeed and I want to be happy and I want to buy stock that increases. It gives me great dividends and I want my car to not break down when I'm driving it. And I want my kids to behave and I want my dogs to shut up and stop barking, etc. <laughs> But that's not my life, man. (laughs) You get the picture here. The version of Christianity that we want often looks like the American dream painted Christian. Let's just be honest. Can we be honest? The biblical version of Christianity is a rough road, a narrow road, and few there be that find it. And I don't like that. I'll be honest, but this is the Christian life, and we conquer through all these things, being killed all the day long by tribulation, by distress, by persecution, by famine, by nakedness, by danger, and ultimately when death comes for you, you win. Friends, death is the last enemy to be destroyed, but do you realize that that last enemy, when it gets you, you win? And death will be destroyed one day. You're going to go through it once. And prayerfully, not twice. And what I mean by that is there is such thing as eternal death under the judgment of God, not the mercy and grace of God. And we escape the second death through the first death of Jesus. He conquered for us, and in him we are more than conquerors. And so in Christ... In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So it's not us conquering on our own, it's us through Jesus. Let's move on to verse 38. Thank you. I saw that at the corner of my eye. Mike tried to attack me, trying to conquer me. For I am sure. Okay, verse 38. Look at it at the bottom there. For I am sure. Paul's like, Look, I'm sure of this. I am sure. That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation. Okay, now, now very quickly, death nor life, those are opposites. Angels or rulers, okay, angels are probably bad angels here. Rulers are another word for, for angels. And then in uh, the end of the verse, powers are also another name. Uh, for angels. And if you want to go to 2nd, 1 Peter 3.22, we don't have time to do it. You could see that that is the language used there. So he's talking about evil spirits here. And he says that it's not life, it's not death, it's not evil spirit, it's nothing present, nor it's nothing to come. It's not height or depth. And, and he's, he's alluding to anything in time and space, anything created. There's nothing that can separate you from God's love if you're in Christ. And I know some of you are thinking, what about me? Can I separate me from God's love? It's a great question. And the answer to that question is, are you included in the all creation? If the Bible's true, then you are. And this is how this works. We touched on this last week. But if you are truly born again, if you are in that line of redemption, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, you will be glorified. You will make it to the end. There may be seasons where you are walking away from God. And if you're a believer, friends, I just want to warn you lovingly, you're asking for his fatherly discipline. And when it comes, it won't be awesome. Like, my kids push me to the limit, and once I'm at that limit, the awesomeness has left the room. (laughs) And God, yes, is much more patient and much more self-controlled than I am, but man, you don't want the discipline of God. Now listen, He's not punishing you for your sin. It's not like you're going to pay for this sin. That's not what the discipline of God is. God will get you back to Himself by any means, and sometimes those means hurt. And so for your own good, it's better to walk in the way. Walk in the way. Don't go to the right or left. Don't test him. Don't slap God in the face. He's bigger than you, man. (laughs) Don't do it. So, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's good news. Okay? And this is why this chapter is called the greatest chapter in the Bible, because it is full of promises. No matter what you're facing as a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are safe and secure. And listen, the image I like to to see is this. God's got us in his hands. Now, we know God doesn't have hands. He's a spirit. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But he's also said in the Bible to have wings, okay? So I can pretend he has hands. He doesn't really have wings, and so what the image sometimes is, is this. We're like, let go of me, God. And we're like prying at his fingers. And we're like, I don't want you. You know, you know when your kids are mad, you guys who have kids, you've been here. You're like, come here. And they're like, no, I don't want you. And they're like elbowing and kicking and screaming. We do that to God. And we're trying to pry his hands off of us. Listen, your arm's too short to box with God. <laughs> you are not strong enough to peel his fingers off of you. And we all know what it's like to sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And isn't it good news that he goes away from the 99 after the one straying? And we've all been that one straying, right? And we feel the pull to stray. Friends, isn't it good news that we can't even separate ourselves from the love of God in Christ? We can't even pry his fingers off of us. If you're his, you're his. That's good news, friends. And so tonight, we're going to do this to celebrate these truths. We're going to take communion together as one church, one people of God. And my encouragement would be, maybe tonight, you're hearing all these things, and you're like, I don't know if I am in Christ. I don't know if I belong to him. I don't know if these verses are true for me. My encouragement would be, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Entrust yourself to him that you might be forgiven, set free from your sin, included in the people of God. You, maybe for the first time as a Christian, can take communion with us. Maybe as as an act of faith, as a response to the message, take communion with us. Communion is a symbol of Jesus' body broken and blood shed for us. And by us taking it into our bodies, we are saying, we have received Jesus' sacrifice. I have received it personally. That's what we're saying. This is for me. And we get to do it together as a church saying, it's not just for me, but it's for us. God died for us, the church. And I am a part of the us. So we're going to celebrate that Jesus died for us. He won these promises for us and nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus. And so we're going to sing a song together. The worship team's going to come out. We're going to sing a gospel song. And I would ask you to hold your communion elements until after the song is over, and then I'll come back out, and I'll lead us all in taking communion together as one church. So if you could stand and prepare to sing, again, hold your communion elements until we are done singing. I'll come back out, and I'll lead us all in taking communion together. I love the verse in that song that says, my sin... This glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. So what you hold in your hands here is a symbol of Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for us. We take it together to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do it every week to remember That we are safe in Jesus, and He is the reason we gather. He is the reason we worship. And so let us together remember Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for us and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes back again. Let's eat and drink together. Let's pray. Father, we are struck by your word. We thank you that even in the worst of situations and circumstances, you've told us we are more than conquerors. Even in death, we are conquering, we are winning. God, may we not believe the standards of the world of what it means to win. God, help us to see your version of winning. Father, I do pray that you would give us grace to believe your promises. Give us the grace to be sustained in believing you and trusting you. Give us the grace to love you and to love our neighbor as ourself. We thank you that in our failings, we are safe in Christ. We thank you that there is no condemnation for us in Christ because of his willingness to be a substitute and your will to crush him in our place. We thank you for Jesus, body broken and bloodshed for us. Father, I pray that we would go from this place encouraged. Pray that uh, the evening would be uh, full of laughter and enjoyment of each other and the food that you have provided. God, we thank you for it. We pray you would bless it to our bodies. We pray that, God, the fellowship would be uplifting, encouraging. Uh, God, be with us as we go throughout our week. May we represent you well to everyone we come in contact with. May we bear your fruit by your spirit. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys.